0: Common sense, honest conversation, and thought provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello, and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast. Today we have a very interesting interview with former Clatsop County District Attorney Joshua Marquis. Josh was the District Attorney for Clatsop County, which includes Astoria for, as he puts it, a quarter century prosecuted a bunch of cases up there and has some very interesting views on the state of criminal justice in Oregon. We talk about Measure 110. We talk about Measure 11. We talk about how to make sense of the differing interpretations of crime rates. Josh is a registered Democrat. He says he's always been a registered Democrat, has never voted for a nationwide national Republican, but his his views are definitely dissimilar from the folks that kind of lead Democrats in this state these days, although I would suspect his views are not so different than a lot of registered Democrats in this state. Hope you enjoy the interview, and I'll talk to you after. All right, and now I'd like to welcome Josh Marquis, former district attorney of Clatsop County here in Oregon. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing fine. Thanks for having
0: me. Thanks for joining us today on the Oregon Roundup podcast. Josh and I struck up kind of an email friendship recently over matters related to, broadly speaking, law enforcement in Oregon. Extremely knowledgeable guy about prosecutorial things, all things prosecutorial. And so I thought it'd be good to have him come on since so much of kind of what is in the focus here in Oregon these days has to do with crime and issues around crime When is it that you were DA in Clatsop County?
1: I was appointed by Governor Roberts in 1994, and my last day at office was January 1st, 2019, so I was in office
0: 25 years. Are you from Oregon originally?
1: Not born here. I was born in Los Angeles. My father was a professor at the University of Oregon, and
0: my parents moved
1: to Eugene when I was about two, and then we lived overseas for two years. And I went to high school in California, and then I came back to go to undergraduate law school here. And with a couple exceptions, I moved down to California to be a speechwriter to the Attorney General of California at one point. And I was a newspaper reporter in Los Angeles, but I always kept coming back to Oregon because I really liked it.
0: Maybe what we could start off with, Josh, is kind of an open-ended question for you. Using whatever metric or definitions you want to use— How would you describe the state of affairs for criminal justice, criminality, prosecution, law enforcement, that whole world in Oregon as it stands right now?
1: Sliding backwards badly, and Portland is a good example of that. Now, there's always, of course, a temptation, I think, by people like me who are in public office to claim that their era was the golden era and everything else sort of you know, false comparison, I'm really not thinking so much of what I accomplished, but there were some real giants in the 80s and 90s, like Mike Shrunk, the district attorney of Portland for 32 years, and just did remarkable things. And now the district attorney of Portland is a man who I've known since he was a junior, I mean, not well, but I certainly Mike Schmidt, who has helped destroy the office and helped destroy Portland. What I see, I mean, this is big picture stuff, is when I started working in the DA's office as an undergraduate U of O in the 1970s in Eugene, we were at a period in Oregon where we had a real hug-a-thug attitude. Oregon only had two or three prisons for the whole state. I think our prison population was about 3,000 at the time. And when people got sentenced to, quote, life in prison for murder, they served on average less than eight years. If they were sentenced to 20 years for rape, they probably did 18 months. And eventually, Oregon was always patting itself on the back, particularly in the 70s and to some extent the 80s, about how enlightened and smart it was. And crime got worse and worse, as it did in many parts of the United States, but Oregon didn't really have any big cities other than Portland. There wasn't a real good reason for it. In the late 1980s, a lot of grassroots groups started agitating for victims' rights, for truth and sentencing. At about the time I started practicing law in 1981, and there was a real sea change. And it was not started by politicians. It was started by crime victims and, to a lesser degree, prosecutors. Prosecutors were not in the forefront. I'm afraid. It's kind of a shame to say. And then by the late 80s, victims' rights started becoming law. And in the 90s, probably the most significant was the initiation of ballot measure 11, which is still mostly law. It hasn't mostly been torn apart, which basically means real time for real crime. Quite simply, that if you committed murder, you served 25 years. If you committed rape, you could you served eight. If you committed child molestation, you served six. Now, when most people hear that, they don't think of that as that radical, but it was. It also, accompanying that, was a significant reduction in crime all during the 90s and early part of the 21st century. And what we've started seeing in about 2015, before the pandemic, is a reversal of that. Some district attorneys like Mike Schmidt in Portland have been elected, Completely abandoned. I reject the term progressive. It's used these days as a code word or a substitute for, you know, left wing. I've been a Democrat all my life. I have never voted for a Republican for national office. I reject that. As, and I don't think criminal justice is something that can be easily lumped into right left conservative Republican Democrat. There was a huge positive change in Oregon and in many parts country. And there has been a real backtracking from that, particularly since probably about 2015, 2014.
0: One of the things you brought up is that we're we're kind of slight, or I guess you implied, I guess, is that we're sliding back into kind of, as you put it, the hug-a-thug mentality of the 70s, which accompanied an increase in crime. One of the kind of frustrating things for those of us that you know, follow this stuff, but not nearly as knowledgeably as you do, is the argument about whether crime is actually increasing or has actually increased in Oregon or even in Portland. uh, You see people make the argument that actually, no, the crime rates are down. What is a good way to think about crime rates and the rate of criminality or however you want to define that in Oregon?
1: Well, I think there's to do it because clearly statistics can be manipulated and unfortunately one of the ways they can be most easily manipulated is by pseudo DAs like Mike Schmidt because if you're the chief prosecutor of a county and you decide that you're simply not going to file let's say I don't, drug cases don't exist anymore we can talk about that but let's take something else let's say we're just not going to file certain kinds of burglaries or thefts because it just we're just not that is ultimately the decision of the of the prosecutor. And A, if you don't file the case, it doesn't exist. It might exist as an arrest, which is some of the FBI statistics. But after a relatively short period of time, about a year, usually the police agencies get the idea, and they just stop arresting people for crimes that they realize the prosecutor is simply not going to prosecute. So one of the reasons the data is mostly unreliable in Portland, the largest you know, city in Oregon, is because Mike Schmidt's filing policies are such that something like half of the filings that used to happen, um, and he has fewer prosecutors, and he has policies in which he you know, doesn't want or he chooses not to prosecute. So in the face of that, then you have to say, okay, well, how can we tell? Well, there's one data point that just doesn't get fudged and that is deaths, and homicides in particular. So if we look at nothing else in Oregon or particularly in Portland and Multnomah County, we simply look at the number of people who have been shot down or stabbed because that, that is a number that just can't be overlooked. And the sad reality is that Portland is now, for this third, I think, year in a row, at all-time highs for homicide. So whatever someone says about, oh, well, burglary really isn't that bad or drug abuse isn't that bad, you can't really say that about drug abuse because all we've done in Oregon for the last five years is just continually decriminalize drugs. Now, keep in mind, Oregon was never a place, at least in modern times, that put people in prison for drug possession. The Oregon Criminal Code was massively rewritten in 1971. And when that happened, although there were paper felonies, sentencing guidelines basically prescribed a at maximum 30-day sentence on your third or fourth conviction. So Oregon always had the second lowest rate of imprisonment for drug charges. and I don't disagree with that. I think it's a stupid reason to keep prisons. And most drug addicts are at their core addicts rather than criminals, although they all addicts do not necessarily equal burglars. So to answer your question, I mean there you also you know you, you don't have to believe your lying eyes. I, I don't live in Portland, but I my doctors are there. I do a lot of shopping there. you know, we go out to dinner there. So you know there's the old adage about if you boil the frog slowly, the frog doesn't know it's being boiled until it's dead. And Portland sort of strikes me as that. And I say that with absolutely no pleasure. Portland's ninety two miles from Astoria, And I can see i've I've been staying at you know downtown hotels and going to restaurants and shopping in Portland for forty years. And Portland is degrading at a visible rate. It's terrible. It's still not cheap to live in Portland. I mean, people could point to the cost of you know housing. In in most parts of Portland, it's really, really high. It's true, but it's not just that there's 5,000 people living on the street. You know, the overdose rate. I mean, in the Oregonian, which has become a really lousy newspaper over the last ten years, reported, I think just last week, in one 24-hour period, something like six or seven people killed over dead from overdoses. And the reason is that we have literally no criminal law enforcement anymore. For example, most people don't realize this, but first in, the, in 2017, we reduced, or the legislature reduced all drug felonies to misdemeanors. And that made it to the point where really there were no more drug task forces. It just wasn't worth it. And then in 2020, voters were, i conned by the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a Soros-funded group out of Washington, D.C., into essentially legalizing all drugs. Now, the argument is, oh, it's just small amounts of drugs. Well, you know, and most people don't know what a gram or two of heroin or methamphetamine is. So the easiest way to describe it is, for example, OxyContin, which is a very powerful, concentrated form of the drug perkinan. And... Right now in Oregon, you can possess 39 tablets of Oxycontin, 80 milligram formulation, which is enough that if most ordinary people crushed it up, they would probably die because it is the equivalent of 15 doses of Percocet. So somebody could be caught with whatever. I can't do the math fast enough. You know, 39 times, 15 ordinary doses, and that's considered a class e infraction which is below not having your license plate visible
0: i want to i want to get back to measure 110 here here in a moment josh but maybe circling back to the homicide rate or the, just the death <laughs> deaths by other people in portland i saw a headline i didn't read the story i saw a headline i think this week saying that the the numbers this year are actually lagging in terms of homicides in Portland compared to the previous two years. Did you see that story by chance?
1: One of the headlines I'm looking at, this is from the Oregon, It says Portland homicides have slowed. Here's why experts aren't ready to call it a trend. That was from two days ago. The story today reads headline, man, woman found shot to death in Northeast Portland city closing in on 2022 homicide pace. Says, <laughs> so I mean, I get I mean, at one level, of course you'd rather not think that people are you know being mowed down at you know historic rates and there there did appear to be a slight slowing off of the really really bad year we had last year but that that appears to be going to help this that quickly
0: if you extrapolate you know a certain number of deaths out of the first three months of the year over the rest of the year and then you get a couple more that can uh, that can really change the the projection oh, yeah. for the rest of the year Compare
1: us to say Chicago, it's not terrible. We do not have a homicide rate like Chicago, but we don't live in Chicago. We live in Oregon. And for Oregon, this is a terrible rate. And I mean, and, and the other thing that's not often talked about is who the victims are. They are overwhelmingly young black men. I'm not talking about the, just the perpetrators, although the suspects are often that. But as a community, the black community in Oregon, which is very small, it's statewide 2.2 percent. And in Portland, it's bigger, probably more like seven. The victims constitute 30 to 40 percent of the murder victims in, in, in Oregon.
0: Yeah, and that's tragic and goes to the it, what I see, and you, you might agree with this, the hypocrisy of people who call themselves progressive, saying, well, we, we can't prosecute crimes because the people we prosecute tend overwhelmingly or disproportionately to be minorities. So are the victims. Therein, you have a problem.
1: Well, enormously. I'm My memory, I'm trying to look on my wall for this particular plaque. In 2000, what year was that? 2003, I was appointed by then Governor Kulingowski
0: to a, something called the
1: Oregon Criminal Justice Commission, which is Actually, the way Mike Schmidt made his bones, he, he eventually was appointed executive director of it. It used to be, 20 years ago when I was appointed to it, it was a small policy shop that essentially did data research to, on, on crime trends. It has since, under Schmidt's tutorial, the, before he was elected DA in Portland, it became an advocacy shop with many, many more people in it that we're pushing and one of the things people don't know is that essentially all federal money in Oregon is channeled through the criminal justice commission. So it doesn't matter if you're a DA's office or a police department or a nonprofit if you're looking for the hundreds of millions of dollars that flow from the federal government it flows through the criminal justice commission. When I was nominated it's a it's a position that requires Senate confirmation one of the senators who happened to be a black woman had some concerns about my appointment because I, I've been pretty outspoken my entire professional life. And that was, this is 20 years ago, and I was no less controversial then. And so I was told by the governor's office, they wanted me to drive down to Salem, which is not a short drive. It's about 200 miles one way and meet with this senator and a her concerns. <laughs> And we had a nice chat, but what I did is I essentially sort of hijacked the conversation and started off before she could say anything by saying, you know, Senator, I am concerned, as I'm sure you are, by the fact that a black man in Oregon is eight times more likely to be murdered on the streets than I am, simply because of the color of his skin. And I, I was deliberately trying to, of course— seized the conversation and direct it away but I'm a trial lawyer so that's what I do and she did not vote against my confirmation
0: <laughs> <laughs> so mission mission uh, mission accomplished so let's let's get back to measure 110 a little bit and you you called it a fraud perpetrated on the voters of Oregon and that's something I think there's a, a lot of evidence for that for that conclusion but i want to start with the way that i think some oregonians still think about measure 110 and hard drug decriminalization in general is that it doesn't really impact people that aren't using those drugs right so you've got people that are addicted to this stuff i think 110 was sold as a way to you know care for those folks rather than incarcerate them and i think your average oregon voter who ended up voting for that measure thought that that was a more humane approach and it wouldn't wouldn't really impact them right in your opinion what do you think the impact of 110 has been on Oregonians who aren't the vast majority of Oregonians who aren't hard drug users
1: the drugs that really concern us everybody you know regardless of our political stripe are so-called hard drugs specifically Methamphetamine, heroin, and now really replacing heroin everywhere in America and other parts of the world, bootleg forms of fentanyl, carfentanyl, servofentanyl, These are all analogs. the The thing that's radically different about methamphetamine and fentanyl versus, say, cocaine and heroin, is that cocaine and heroin require they are semi natural. So
0: in order to get heroin,
1: you need to grow poppies, and then you turn the poppies into morphine, you turn the morphine into diacetylmorphine, and that's heroin. With uh, cocaine, you have to grow the cocaine plant, and then you boil it down. So heroin and cocaine always require fairly large international. Neither of those drugs grows easily in the United States. It comes from you know, either the Golden Triangle in Thailand and Laos, in the case of heroin or in cocaine, most of South America. Other than, say, the recreational use of cocaine that was, I guess, widespread within the upper middle class community. I mean, I, I was in law enforcement my whole adult life, so I only ever saw it from the other end of the of the handcuffs, so to speak. Generally, I think you're talking about a relatively small part of the population that takes a syringe and jams it into their arm or smokes it So, yes, most of Oregonians were able to frame it as, well, certainly. And, and of course, Drug Policy Alliance had millions, literally, three, four, five million bucks. The other side, which I participated in, we were pathetic. We had $150,000. I think I threw in one or two thousand, which is as much as I could. And we weren't even able to buy a single TV yet because the other side had so much money. They were able to totally frame the conversation. And the conversation was framed, as you say, as do you think a drug addict should be thrown in prison, you know, and and basically treated like a criminal and locked up in a dank prison cell, or should they be treated compassionately and given treatment for what is essentially a disease? Now, if you frame it that way, it's sort of like, do you think we ought to feed this baby or do you think we ought to feed it with a stick? And of course, the answer is, well, You want to be compassionate. Part of the problem was the degeneration of the media, because nobody was asking hard questions like, how many people are actually in prison for drugs in Oregon? The answer is virtually nobody. In fact, there have been in campaigns and say, since 2010 in Oregon, I was thinking of one that essentially made civil forfeiture impossible. They were looking for horror stories about how the cops had, you know, gone in and See some poor old lady's, you know, house because somebody had, had once trafficked cocaine in there, and they literally couldn't find any horror stories in Oregon, so they took stories from Louisiana and repackaged them to make them look like they were from Oregon. So that's really what happened in in 2020. Is the Drug Policy Alliance, which believes sincerely in legalizing drugs, they think it's a none of the government's business. B, it's a purely medical problem. You know, C, the government has no business doing this. They wanted a state that was sort of like the three bears, not too big, not too small, just right. Oregon had already legalized marijuana. We were the first state, in fact, and I was part of it in the mid-70s to functionally legalize marijuana, which I thought made sense but we went much further and much faster. So Oregon was just right. It was big enough that it made a difference. We weren't Vermont or, you know, Alaska or, you know, some tiny little state that didn't matter. And we weren't too big. We weren't Illinois or New Jersey or certainly not California. And most of the state is pretty libertarian, may not be the right word, but kind of You know, do your own thing, and it's not the government's business. So they had that pre-existing template, and then they were able to frame the discussion because it was 2020. It was the middle of the pandemic, and the press was both diminished and lazy, and frame it as you know, do you think sick people should get treatment, or do you think they should go to prison?
0: I think that the media not only diminished and lazy, but I think, beholden to a similar ideology that drove the pro-campaign in that particular election.
1: Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I've been part of, you know, attempts to completely legalize marijuana, which I don't feel nearly as strongly about. I still don't think it's a great idea. But I think Oregonians, that was more of an informed decision. But 110, I've been pretty outspoken about this. and, And I felt frankly, like I was outstanding in my field, (laughs) meaning not not outstanding in my field, but outstanding in my field, because I really found almost nobody institutionally. I like writing op-eds. It's easy for me, and I know most of the newspapers in Oregon. So, and that's one way, basically one of the few ways, if you don't have a lot of money to get out, is to write a 600-word op-ed in the Oregonian or the or one of some of the one of the daily newspapers that still exist. But we were just completely overwhelmed by the other side. And they were able, I believe in some senses, it was a fraud because it was sold as let's decriminalize and let's treat. And absolutely no infrastructure was set up for treatment. Actually the money was there. If they had had really directed marijuana taxes and stuff like that, they could have done it. And I think part of it is what you said earlier, that most people don't see themselves as either being drug addicts, family of drug addicts. And one of the saddest things has been to watch working in middle class families have their sons and daughters, not just teenagers, but young adults dying of fentanyl overdoses because it's very easy to happen and to show you how
0: Measure 110 is something that I've written a lot about. It's one of those issues here in Oregon where I think the public perception of the problem is so much more on the mark than the kind of policymakers, media. I'm going to call them elites. I don't mean that in a necessarily pejorative sense, but the people that kind of influence actual decision-making in Oregon Those folks don't get it, but you talk to people on the street and they're like, yeah, legalizing drugs was a bad idea or decriminalizing hard drugs was a bad idea. Look at where we stand now. Are you able, given your prosecutorial background, how would Measure 110, or if it has, the fact that we've decriminalized those hard drugs, how has that contributed to, say, homelessness in Oregon, or if you think it has, and or upswings in crime, particularly maybe property crime in Oregon?
1: Well, unfortunately, both kinds of crime. Generally speaking, the heroin type drugs, meaning opioids and depressants, a typical opioid addict is of relatively little risk other than when they're trying to find their drug. Because when they're happy, when they've injected heroin or Fentanyl or back when I was in high school, pentobarbital, or Reds or Yellow Jackets or whatever, which are not in the lexicon anymore, that that person just goes to sleep. On the other hand, stimulant drugs, cocaine is one of them, much worse as methamphetamine makes people aggressive, mean, hypersexual. Methamphetamine is in many ways sort of like total nightmare drug. It is directly related to violent antisocial behavior, which in fairness, heroin and opioids by themselves generally aren't. We're not even talking about heroin anymore because heroin you know, is expensive to make and transport and it's so much easier to make fentanyl. It doesn't require anything at all. If I can use an analogy, one of the things we probably don't have time for, and I am probably ironically best known in national legal circles as an advocate of capital punishment. I have both defended capital cases, but I have more frequently prosecuted them. And more importantly, I've also written law review articles. I've debated it not only in the United States, but overseas. But there was a an exchange that probably could be just as well applied to what you were talking about, about this gap between regular citizens and sort of the elite that I think is. by the federal government for the murder of almost 200 people in Oklahoma City. And I was watching C-SPAN. My wife was getting me to watch C-SPAN. And they were doing clips from the English-language versions of foreign news services. So Radio France, Deutsche Welle, Radio Televisione Italiana, the Italian one. So these are the English-language versions. And they were interviewing a guy who was the head of Amnesty International, who ironically, six months later, I was doing a debate with in Brussels. But at the time, he was trying to explain the difference between support, in this case, for capital punishment in America and Europe. And it could be just as easily transferred to what you're talking about. And what he said in broken English was, well, in Europe, you have the leaders or head of the people But in America, you have the people who are ahead of the leaders. Now, what he was trying to say was that as a democratic form of government, small d, we generally let decisions be made literally directly by the people in America to some degree. And in Europe, it's much more common to have a Republican form of government where small r, where the people who are elected make these decisions. He was talking about capital punishment, but it could easily be applied, as you just said, to say, you know, the the issue about drugs. I don't attribute ill motive for the people who supported Measure one ten. I don't think they wanted to see thousands of Oregonians die from overdoses or for homelessness to explode. But If you just look at, I mean, real basic numbers, I looked up one data point yesterday about how many deaths were there in America 50 years ago in 1973 from drug overdoses. And the answer is about 6,000. This year, there were 70,000 in the United States.
0: I read some things about, you know, our uh, our country's uh, life expectancy has started to slide backwards for the first time in a really long time and a lot of that has to do with the increase of drug overdoses nationally. Back to 110, it seems to me I've argued with people online about this, which is not a productive endeavor, but <laughs> the I'll say well, if 110 were up for a vote right now it would fail dramatically or if a Conversely, if a measure to repeal 110 were on the ballot, it would pass overwhelmingly. And then people throw these, you know, drug policy organization polls that ask the pretend question you mentioned earlier. First of all, is there an effort underway to repeal, like a viable, semi-viable effort to repeal 110 floating out there? And I don't mean just... Bills in the legislature that aren't going to go anywhere. Is anyone that you know of looking at a ballot measure to repeal this thing? No.
1: One of the the nice things about Oregon, it can be, is that Oregon invented the direct initiative system. A
0: man named William
1: Uren, U-apostrophe-R-E-N. He was a a one-term state representative from Clackamas County in 1898. And he came up with the idea of direct referendum. The problem with it, and it has been the source of much good in Oregon, not just in criminal law, but many other things. But it still now requires a couple million bucks. So somebody would have to bankroll an initiative. The Oregon Democratic Party, which I used to be part of, I'm still, I still am registered as a Democrat, but I don't identify as such. The Democratic Party would never allow any of its functionaries to be involved in it. I don't think the Oregon Republican Party is that invested in it. They're much more interested in other culture war things like abortion, which they might as well just throw themselves up against a wall in Oregon. And so the short answer is there is nothing percolating or or getting moving to either have the legislature vote on it, which would, I think, be hopeless at this point because the Democrats have almost a supermajority, but the other way, of course, and it's what I've been advocating for not just Measure 110, which is just re-refer it. Take the same language, put it back in front of voters, except let's have a real conversation. And I applied the same thing to two other criminal justice issues. One is Measure 11, which was reaffirmed by voters six years after it was passed by an even greater margin. And now it's been 20 years, and the legislature's been chipping away at it. But they don't have the guts to re-refer it to the voters. That's all they'd have to do is just say, we're just re-referring. And the final thing that I believe should be re-referred to the voters is the death penalty. They've also chipped away at that. They knew they didn't have the supermajority to pass it. They just do little things that functionally abolish it. I realize that's probably going beyond your question.
0: Crime issues generally present, you know, from a political standpoint, they present a kind of a classic concentrated versus dispersed interest problem in the sense that you have people that are wealthy and intensely interested in trying to decriminalize hard drugs to make Oregon a Petri dish or whatever. And you have a bunch of people now that see that in play that no, it was a really bad idea. And I would venture a very sub- significant majority of Oregon voters believe that if tr- if posed the question directly right now. But there's not the money. There's not the money. It's, you know, it's the people living in, on the east side of Portland whose neighborhoods have gone to pot in part because of Measure 110 who would say, yeah, let's repeal that puppy. But they don't have the money to get it on the ballot. And there's no, you know, business interests are affected, but they're not affected in a way that motivates them to organize and fund a repeal effort. We need a mechanism to get issues like that. And I agree with Measure 11 and the death penalty as well, because they're similar. We need a clean way to get those in front of the voters, because I think we win if that happens.
1: There are two ways to do it that, you know, I've seen in my professional lifetime and are doable but they require, you know, there's a, a upper middle class. I mean, I would throw one or two thousand dollars personally into the pot to do it. And, but, but there needs to be at least another one to two thousand of me's willing to do that. And, and I know just being in politics, there isn't. I mean, I might be able to find another hundred people to do it. And then we're only at about, you know, only a quarter million dollars, not enough money to do it. The other part is, how invested is the Democratic Party of Oregon, which totally controls the Oregon legislature, and the governor's I supported Betsy Johnson, who is a close personal friend of mine, as well as, I think, a political figure on the level of Wayne Morse, who was a good friend of my father's. Most Oregonians don't even know who he is anymore. He was a United States senator for many years from Oregon. You know, there are only two paths to get on the ballot. One is very simple. You just it's referral from the legislature doesn't cost them anything. And if they really believed Oregonians were in favor or opposed to X, that's all they'd have to do. You know, I've had debates about let's take stay on topic of measure 110. And I've said, OK, if you believe that, you know, that was the right thing to do. The usual argument I get back on that is it's not been long enough yet. It's only been three years you know and i'm going oh okay how many more hundreds or even thousands of people have to overdose in oregon i mean this is we clearly and it's not getting better in fact if anything the drug crisis is expanding to portions of the population that didn't happen before now i'm a little leery when i hear i mean it's very sad to hear a middle class mom say my son was really a good boy and You know, he really didn't take drugs and, you know, he just took one pill thinking that it was a Xanax or
0: One question I have is, you know, based on all this stuff that's going on in Oregon, your background working in criminal law, what is the one, if you could snap your fingers and cause one policy change at the state level in Oregon to improve our crime slash homelessness slash drug death situation, what would that be to put you on the spot?
1: just one it would probably be measure to strengthen measure 11 and reinstate the juvenile portions of measure 11 because in my experience of my 42 years of practicing law of being a defense attorney in oregon of being a prosecutor in oregon and also i mean that alone is a very unusual background most people either one or the other they have not done both and the other part that that is different at least in my background is that i've lived all over the state except Portland. So I've worked and lived full time in Newport, in Bend, in Eugene, and Astoria. So almost every major population center outside of Portland, except Medford. And I believe that you know if I look at the time before Measure Eleven and when before Truth and Sentencing, and after, and and, the, and this now post Measure Eleven time, I would say the the most Positive things happened when there were real consequences for serious crime, which is what Measure Eleven is. It didn't include drugs, so it wouldn't affect it directly. But the way in which it does is that most addicts do not go around stabbing people and, and committing, you know, violent crimes. But some do, and clearly, all you have to do is drive through Portland and, God forbid, walk through Portland. I saw a video the other day that I found deeply disturbing of a a man walking through downtown Portland with a golf club who was apparently just assaulting people and then reading about another similar individual who'd been treated at the so-called Unity Center, which is the the one-size-fits-all mental hospital where they treated and released to be (laughs) (laughs) euphemistic about it. So if there's one thing I could take, it would be, I know because one of the advantages to being in the DA in a small town is there's not seven degrees of separation or even five, it's two. So when I prosecuted somebody, when I oversaw a raid and, the, and an arrest, I would run in for that person if they were in prison in the grocery store or their family. And so it wasn't a question of me living in the other side of town. There is no other side of town. It creates a degree of responsibility that I had to face, but also other people. So if there was one thing that I saw that I thought really improved things, it was when serious crime was dealt with seriously. And more importantly, the criminal subpopulation knew that. Because although I'm not saying that everything works on a, you know, simply a, well, people know they're going to go to prison, so they're not going to commit those crimes. It's obviously not that simple. But it made a huge difference. I remember going around to high schools. It was an I, Governor, when Ted Kuligowski was governor, he had this shtick where he'd go to the local high school and he'd have the presiding circuit court judge stand on one side of him and the district attorney on the other. And he'd basically scare the crap out of the high school students and talk to them about this is right at not long after measure 11 passed. Then I, I spent a lot of time, I was always willing to talk to high school classes. And I've done that in Astoria and Salem, other places. And what I found fascinating was the degree to which high school students who couldn't tell you who the president was, or you know, whether Bulgaria was a rock band or a country, but they could tell you how much time that they would do in prison if they used a weapon and robbed somebody. That really penetrated the body politic, the knowledge of ordinary Oregonians, young Oregonians who no, the, the most dangerous people in America are 18 to 25-year-old men, <laughs> and because they're the ones who commit most of the crime. I think it really had an impact, but it's not the kind of thing you can just do on a, a casual, occasional basis.
0: Well, that's all the time we have today, Josh Marquis. Where can Roundup listeners find more of your work? You mentioned your op-eds, maybe a Twitter feed. Where can they find you? My
1: Twitter feed, everything either goes by my real name, Joshua Marquis, or my email address, which I've been using the same one for over 30 years. It's CoastDA, not very original. I was the DA on the coast, so it's just the other way around, C-O-A-S-T-D-A. There's a website, which is also called CoastDA.com. My wife, Cindy Price, who is an editor, basically almost every single op-ed I've written for the last 23 years is posted there up till today. So there's, you know, probably three or four hundred opinion pieces posted there. And it's the same handle on Twitter.
0: That's great, Josh. And I want to thank you for being outspoken on these issues, including during times where it was really uncomfortable and difficult for people to do so. It's better to be consistently right. Have people always say nice things about you, I think.
1: For somebody who is no longer in office, I'm risking less now other than just, you know, the
0: opprobrium
1: of. I used to testify in the legislature. They grudgingly listened to me. Now they don't even grudgingly listen to me.
0: (laughs) I'm not surprised, but that means you're doing the right thing.
1: I appreciate you for having me on and keep up the good work. Thanks, Josh.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joshua Marquis as much as I enjoyed doing it. Went a little long on the interview, so I'll keep this short. Thank you for listening to the Oregon Roundup podcast. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, podcast on apple Podcasts, google podcast spotify or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts go ahead and subscribe there please it helps other people find us go ahead and leave a five-star review if you like what we do that also helps people find us appreciate you listening and we'll be back in studio soon thanks for listening to the roundup podcast to share your thoughts with jeff you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com You can also subscribe to his newsletter at OregonRoundup.substack.com.